only providence could arrange for a country preacher like myself to follow these three previous preachers. Tom Nettles gave me a brain freeze. <laughs> I'm going to have to get that and listen to it a few more times. I thought for sure Tom Askell was going to preach my sermon. And I don't know if I'm going to ever get through laughing at Mark Poppinson. Uh, you just presented some hilarious stuff and wonderful truths. And I was refreshed by remembering Miss Dorothy Baker. How true were your words. I shall preach now from the New Testament book of First Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'll go ahead and mention the 500-pound gorilla in the room. I am a complementarian. Egalitarianism is an aberrant view among the Baptists that I come from. Since 1845, Never has been more than one-tenth of one percent of Southern Baptist churches who practice ordaining women either to the pastorate or the deaconship. Do the math. That's one in one thousand. That's not exactly a trend. And the recent push to empower the women is not going to change the numbers. We're going to stay with the stuff. We're going to stay with the book. Now, I like women. I married one. And I've been married to her for 51 and a half years. Do you know what I did for Glenda on our 50th anniversary? I took her out to Pie Town, New Mexico. And we parked the motor coach 10 miles from the first electric light. You can see stars out there that you didn't know existed. You talk about romantic ambience. And I took her two miles beyond the motor coach on the ranger and allowed her to sit with me in my elk hunting blind until I harvested a big six-by-six six bull elk. Nothing is too good for this lady. 
I'm trying to raise the bar. But I'll tell you this, if she becomes any more empowered, my goose is cooked. <laughs> Have you found our passage? Let's begin at verse 1. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, left, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall unto the condemnation of the devil. Of good report, them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I have two items in my sermon. One, I want to give you an exposition of the text. And two, I want to give some exhortations from the text. I shall mention three things by way of exposition. I want to tell you that this text is talking about a New Testament church. How to order and regulate what goes on at the church. A church is a local, visible congregation of Christ's baptized disciples who are united in the belief of what the Lord has said and are coveting to do what the Lord has commanded. We're not talking about what some men can do gathered around a campfire down at the deer camp. We're not talking about what a group of ladies might do at a Bible study down at the bowling alley. We're talking about how to do things in the church. A local, visible congregation. You are aware that metaphors are used to describe the church. It's the body, the building, and the bride of Christ. I would suggest that locality and visibility 
are inherent in these metaphors. Did you ever know of a universal invisible building? Did you ever know of a universal invisible body? And may the dear Lord have mercy upon the poor soul who marries a universal invisible bride. I don't know about you, but I desire something more tangible than a bride. I'm not talking to you about something that doesn't exist. The Bible doesn't give any regulations for officers in a universal invisible church. You know why? It never meets. It has no gathering place. It has no enterprise. It's a figment of the imagination. The church of the Lord is real, visible, and it's local. And this text talks about the pastor of the church. The second item in my sermon is the calling of the preacher. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Where then would this desire come from? Shall he flip a coin? to decide whether to go to the seminary or law school? Shall we send him to a seminar on church-related vocation so that he might have a broader perspective of what options are available? I say no. I say that a call to pastor, a call to preach is a spiritual, subjective thing that happens when a man is reading the Scriptures. And he is discovering the principles and the precepts and the promises of Holy Writ. And in a dynamic, spiritual way, the Spirit of God causes those principles and precepts to leap off the page and arrest his heart and his mind until he cannot dismiss them. And over a period of time, the Spirit of God convinces him in his soul that he has been separated unto the gospel and called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without this deep settled conviction that a man has been appointed and anointed by God to pastor, three things will occur. One, he will disgrace God. Two, he will disappoint the people. 
and three, he will be disgusted in his own heart. Settle the matter in your heart. The third item in my exposition has to do with the characteristics that are listed in the passage as qualifications of the pastor. You are aware that there are time constraints here. There are 16 characteristics or qualifications of the pastor. If I were to attempt to preach on all 16 of them, Dr. Askell would not be happy. Uh, they can be divided under three subheadings. The personal characteristics or character, the public characteristics, and the professional characteristics. I shall mention only one or two of these. The text says first, the bishop then must be blameless. That hurt me every time I read it. Blameless. Not perfection. The bishop must be well into the process of sanctification. With his mind, he must be able to discern God and discern doctrine and duty. And with his heart, he must desire to know God, desire to know the doctrine, and to do the duties. But it's more than the head, and more than the heart. It is the will, determining, resolving, to seek after God, to seek to know the doctrine, to determine to do the duties. It must be blameless. And he must be the husband of one wife. Not one woman at a time. Let me help you to see the impracticality of that interpretation. I got married to the widow next door. And she had been married seven times before. And everyone was a Henry. I'm Henry the eighth. I am, I am. Henry VIII. Well, what are we going to do with Henry? He's been married eight times to a woman that's been married eight times. Now can the Lord forgive him? Hallelujah. Is grace able? Is mercy available? Yes. Glory, glory. He can be saved. Can he serve God? 
But would you ordain a man who's been married seven times before? Think about it. Here's another confrontation. What about the transgender person? We're living in a crazy world. Have you thought about that? Our culture is mixed up as a termite in a yo-yo. We got folks nowadays even in the church that don't even know what gender they are. That's hard on a country boy like myself. For any of you in the room in that category, here's my advice. When you go to your room after a while, Go into the bathroom, put a piece of tape over the keyhole, take all of your clothes off, all of them. Get in front of a full-length mirror, do a pirouette to the right and the left, check things out. That'll help you. That'll help you determine whether you're a male or a female. And if that doesn't help you, then you need to leave the convention now and go home and get with your family doctor and try to get some help. What are we going to do with a transgender person who has transgendered from female to male and identifies as a male. And all of this took place prior to conversion. And they've been faithful now at God's house. And some immature group of deacons are going to recommend that we ordain this person. Are y'all getting any of this? And furthermore, the deacon, or rather the preacher, is not to be given to wine. He's to be a teetotaler, an abstainer. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but among the young, reformed, and restless group, there seems to be a, a little bent toward imbibing, intoxicating liquor. Have you noticed any of that? I pray none of you in this room today fall into that category. Why would you drink something of which the Bible describes as a moth? You can get into enough trouble on your own. Why would you drink something that's called a deceiver with warnings like this? Who that is, he that is deceived thereby is not wise. And let me dispel 
this notion that you are a champion for Christian liberty. Get over it. You're not. It may very well be what I call residual depravity. Having not yet completely put off the old man. Are you all getting into this? You're not a champion for liberty. More likely than not, It's the law of sin which is warring against the law of your mind and bringing you into captivity to the law of sin which is in your members. Likely as not, it is this insatiable appetite that you have because of your immaturity as a Christian man, you have this insatiable appetite to be like everybody else in the culture. You want to be like the movie stars. You want to be like the rock stars. You want to be able to imbibe down at the country club after playing a round of golf. But I want to tell you where Baptists have been. While there may have been a few Baptists who imbibed, I want to tell you the church has long since, long ago decided that while you may consume certain beverages under the banner of Christian liberty, we will sacrifice our liberty for the conscience of weaker bread. Where is our willingness to sacrifice for the cause of Christ and the conscience of the bread? Have you seen the farmer's insurance commercial? We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. I knew him well. I'd had dinner in the home of his parents. And the police had to remove him on more than a few occasions from the golf course because he was inebriated. And he lost his pastor and his family. I knew another man well who to celebrate the 20th anniversary prepared a nice meal just he and his wife they would cap it off with a bottle of wine in the jacuzzi on the back porch but it was the taste of the wine that awakened what she had experienced in their early days of marriage. In a matter of a few weeks, she 
had become an alcoholic, left her husband, killed in a car wreck with another man. Don't talk to this country preacher about your Christian liberty. Wait until you've gone around the block at least a time or two. And come back and tell me what you've discovered after pastoring the church. Are you listening? I won't tolerate. Where was I? I remember. Now, for the sake of time, let me tell you that professionally, he's apt to teach. And the best way to teach the Bible is expositionally, verse by verse, get you a book of the Bible, study everything you can get your hands on, borrow some from your friends, download everything you can get, make no excuse. You should be the best preachers that have ever lived on the face of God's earth. And there will be no excuse for you in the judgment when the sheep, chief shepherd appears. And take you a paragraph or so and expound the text. Explain the text. Exegete the text. The layman said to the pastor, I can understand anything you can explain. And furthermore, I can learn anything you can teach. Teach the people. Explain the text. Illustrate the text. Argue the text. And apply the text. Why should the church pay you $75,000 a year to bore them to tears three times every week? God help us, we can get that done a lot cheaper. The hungry sheep, look up. Feed them when they come. And if you've been in your church for four or five years, and the folks are still biblically and theologically illiterate, quit blaming Bush. Quit blaming the previous administration and take responsibility for it yourself. Aptitude. Well, that's the first half of my thing. Good preaching, though, ought to learn how to abbreviate. So here's the second half. I want to give you four exhortations. Number one, there's a thing called the apparent meaning of a text. These brothers who went before me might speak of the perspicuity of the text, the clearness, the plainness, the simplicity of it. Go to Walmart. Ask a hundred people who come out. Help them with their groceries so they'll feel good, good about you. 
Ask them to read this text. And then ask, according to the Bible in this passage, can women serve as pastors? 99 out of 100 will do this. It's apparent from this passage. Number two, there's a thing called authorial intent. What does the author mean to convey to his audience in that context? Now here's the bottom line. If Paul intended to be more comprehensive and inclusive regarding who's qualified so as to include women. If that's his intention, he was a colossal failure. Number three, the abundance of evidence in a court case, there is what is called the preponderance of evidence. And when you begin to look at all of the texts regarding who is to pastor, it becomes more and more apparent that only men are to preach in the church. But here's the last one. Do this. Lean way back now like do this. It's the authority of the text. Now, most Southern Baptists who want women to preach don't know me. Their problem is not with this country preaching. And their problem is not with the Apostle Paul. They understand what Paul is saying. That's not their issue. Their issue is they don't agree with Paul. They think he got it wrong. And ultimately, they don't agree with God. They don't believe in the sovereignty of God, nor the inerrancy of the Scriptures. But I'll tell you what this preacher is going to do. I'm going to keep on preaching, thus saith the Lord. And I trust you will do the same.